This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenevec. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern Time on Bloomberg Radio. Or watch us on YouTube. Search Bloomberg Global News. We got a bunch of stories on our radar today involving COVID and the vaccine. New coronavirus infections in the U.S. Tim rising at the slowest pace of the pandemic in the past week. It's really a sign that the vaccination campaign in the United States cutting down on the spread of the deadly pathogen. And then we just talked about the CDC warning that under-vaccinated areas in the U.S could become hotspots for that mutation of the virus first detected in India. And they are increasing, the CDC is increasing surveillance for the more transmissible variant. Yeah, one thing we like to do is bring you updates as far as the numbers mm-hmm. look. On the global tracker, cases now stand at 167.2 million deaths, exceeding 3.46 million. The vaccine tracker, though, telling us that more than 1.66 billion doses of the coronavirus vaccine have been given around the world. All right, let's let's see what uh, Dr. Sandro Galea has to say. He's been a go-to voice for us throughout the past year on the pandemic. He's Dean and Professor at Boston University School of Public Health, author of the upcoming book, The Contagion Next Time, that's due out in the fall. He joins us once again on the phone from Boston. Dr. Galea, nice to have you back with us. Let's go right to the variant. Uh, the CDC, uh, they are keeping a close eye on this uh, variant detected first in India. How do you see it? Should we anticipate that if we don't have enough of the United States vaccinated come fall and it gets colder again in uh, parts of the country that we could see potentially another wave? Well, good talking again, Carol. It, it, we've been worried about the variants really since the beginning for the past mm-hmm. six months. And, and, and it has felt, as we've discussed on your show, that it's been a bit of a race between vaccination and whether the variants hit the United States and, uh, and affect our uh, course of the pandemic. The worry about the variants is both that they may make the virus more infectious and in some cases make the virus more severe. Now, the vaccines have shown themselves to be quite effective against variants, and although the effectiveness probably is lower against some variants. So we do worry. You do worry about the variant that's coming from India. The, the fact is that we are right now, as you just said in your intro, in the best place in the pandemic that we've been in the past year and a half. I mean, our cases... I think today we're at 14,000 cases, which we haven't been this low since uh, last June. So we are at a point where we have enough people vaccinated, probably enough people who have who have um, immunity from prior infection, that we are turning the corner. So the hope is that the whole population will have enough herd immunity for us to be resistant even as variants emerge. Now, that doesn't change the uh, potential for us to need um, booster shots or for mm-hmm. us to actually need other forms of uh, ways of reinforcing the vaccine, but that remains to be seen. Dr. Galea, help me make sense of, of what we just learned right before we went live today. The U.S. has issued a do not travel advisory on Japan. The U.S. raising its travel advisory on Japan to say Americans shouldn't visit the country where sections are under a state of emergency that, that could be extended. I'm, I'm wondering if we've been vaccinated and the vaccines have proven so effective, then why is it not okay to, to travel to somewhere like Japan? Yeah, that's an excellent question. Uh, ultimately, these decisions are all about the risk mitigation, right? And, uh, and uh, we know that uh, if you've been vaccinated, your chance of getting uh, of reinfected are quite low. It's about 0.003%. We know that if you've been vaccinated, your chance of a severe um, uh, COVID vac- uh, infection is one-tenth less than, again, 0.303%. But the risk is not zero. It's a low risk, but not zero. So really what we're doing is we are making calculated decisions that say, 
if if people are in areas of high density of risk, then does that offset the benefit of the vaccine? And there's no there's no clear answer to that. There's no black and white answer. The answer is somewhere in the middle. So you see simultaneously the CDC saying guidance is that if you've been vaccinated, you don't need to wear a mask indoor or outdoor. And that's really a calculus based on the low risk of transmission in the U.S., but then saying one should be careful because of high risk of transmission in places like Japan. And, and, and again, one can argue this until one is blue in the face, but fundamentally we are making decisions sort of valuing different risk calculations. But we can have a vaccine, we can still get COVID, but the likelihood is that because we have a vaccine, we will probably not end up in the hospital and we will probably not die from COVID. That's correct. So the, the, if, if you have been vaccinated, your, your chances of getting COVID is 0.003%, which is quite low. And then it's another tenfold lower than that to get severe enough to be in hospital, which is really now we're dealing with very low risk. I mean, frankly, you're dealing with risks for things like car accidents to become much higher than that. Right. So there are risks, but they're quite low risks. Having said that, the variants, we're kind of learning as we go in terms of how successful the vaccines are against it. And there's always the chance that another variant comes out where the vaccines aren't as productive against them. Is that fair? That's correct. And, and the worry with the variant is, is not simply the worry about the individual being infected, but if there is a variant that we don't know what it does yet, if you have a number of people getting it, then all, all of a sudden, of course, that becomes something that becomes a real concern in the, in the U.S. itself. So what, what we're seeing here in these official guidance is, is hedging our bets a little bit, saying, let's do the things where we know are low risk, which are more in our control, but let's still be careful about things like travel to places where there are variants we don't understand or where there is a lot of COVID, because we're not really sure what's going to emerge from there. Dr. Galea, we only have about 30 seconds left, and then we're going to come back with you for more. But but what, would you travel internationally right now? I would. It depends to where. And uh, I would be careful and, and travel on airplanes. And, but I, I think it depends um, which parts of the world. And the CDC uh, keep, keeps updating its guidance on a regular basis about yeah. which places it considers to be high risk and low risk. And I think that guidance changing is reasonable. I think it's very prudent guidance changing. Uh, Dr. Galea, I, I'm wondering specifically just about how we think about health changing after this pandemic. We've, we've I think, talked a lot about and, and thought differently a lot about the way that comorbidities have played into the way that people are affected by COVID. And I'm, and I'm wondering how we change as a society, if at all, after this. Yeah, I think it's a terrific question, Tim. My um, worry is that once this is over, we think of health only as a function of vaccines and of viruses. And of course, the the book that I have coming out that you mentioned is really simply to make the point that obviously vaccines have been the game changer here. We want to make sure that we invest in being able to come up with vaccines quickly for, for the next time there's a pandemic like this. But fundamentally, the reason that COVID-19 was as challenging as it was for this country is because we have not historically invested in creating a healthy country. We have not made sure that the places we live, the places we work, the places we play are generating health, that we have not invested in making sure we have clean air, healthy food, safe drinking water. And these are the forces that make us healthy. So I I really hope that as we emerge from COVID-19, we pause and we say, how do we build the healthiest possible country so that we can live longer, healthier lives so that we can be as resilient as possible next time another virus hits. Dr. Galea, who's responsible for creating a healthy society? You know, fundamentally, all of us. Now, what do I mean by that? I mean by that because I think 
It is the policies and politics that shape the world we live in. But those policies and politics reflect our conversation, Carol. I think if you and I and Tim and all of us agree that we should not accept transportation policy or financial policy that doesn't build health, then politicians will also follow suit. So I think we actually need to say that health is a key priority. I mean, goodness knows for the past year and a half, we have upended our whole world right, because of health. So I think we should say that we want to make sure that we have health injected in all policies so that we can be as healthy as can be and as robust as can be to future threats. But does that mean when somebody has a chronic illness or an illness that is all-consuming, you know, cancer is one of them, that we as a society provide some kind of safety net that lets a person kind of not work and drop back so that they can really focus on their well-being? Yes, and it's, I think it's an excellent addition. Because I, I do think that having the kind of social safety net that considers health as our collective responsibility, that considers our health as a public good, is a key part of that. And also, I mean, you mentioned cancer, which a lot of it is genetic, but things like heart disease, which is, by the way, the largest killer by far, fundamentally it's determined by forces you experience all the way from childhood all the way into adulthood. So it's making sure that we are eating well and having the opportunity to exercise, having as little incentive as possible to smoke, which fundamentally prevents heart disease. So it's all of that. It is creating, it is investing in the structures that make the world healthier and having the safety that's available so that when we do get sick, we have the best possible doctors. What's the best way to get policymakers on board with this? Because they're, well, I mean, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say Republicans, Democrats agree on very little right now. And not everybody's on the same page about the way that the government should be spending the money it has. Well, I've, you know, I've spoken to, to legislators on both sides of the aisle, and I've had the privilege of speaking to uh, media on sort of, from both sides. And uh, the one thing that I find is that everybody wants their kids to be healthy. I, I've yet to, I have yet to talk to a single person who doesn't want their children to grow up to be healthy. So I do think that health is a great unifier that way. And I mean, how do we change the conversation? I think uh, it's by having this conversation again and again. All right. I don't blame you. The more we talk about something, um, or I don't, I don't argue with you because <laughs> the more you talk about something, the more it's uh, likely to eventually gain some traction, certainly when it comes to policy. Dr. Sandra Galea, he's Dean and Professor at Boston University School of Public Health with us from Boston. His uh, upcoming book, it'll be out in the fall, is called The Contagion Next Time. You are listening to Bloomberg Business Week on this Monday. Carol Master, along with Tim Stenovic. I have to say, this was one of my first tweets of the morning. The story about man's best friend and how our pups, Tim, may ultimately help us finding the fountain of youth uh, by way of Silicon Valley. Joining us now is Joel Weber, editor at Bloomberg Business Week. He's live with us from the Bloomberg Interactive Brokers Studios. Uh, Ashley Vance, features writer for Bloomberg Business Week, also the author of Elon Musk, Tesla, SpaceX, and the Quest for a Fantastic Future. He joins us on the phone from Palo Alto. Speaking of a fantastic future, it would be great, Joel, if dogs lived for a very long time. Talk to us, though, about why, what the connection is between a dog living a long time or finding out why a dog lives a long time and how a human can actually extend their life that way. So um, in Silicon Valley, um, life-extending technologies are of great interest. And there's been a lot of, uh, of, of interest in what can be done on a cellular level to basically eke out a few more dozen years. The problem is like testing on humans is actually really difficult because it takes a long time to get there. Um, and that kind of brings us to this story that Ashley got, which was, you know, there's a, a buddy in some of our lives 
that we could maybe do some testing on. So, so Ashley, what did what did you find as um, as you dug into this a little bit? Yeah, well, so there's this company called Loyal, and they're they're based in San Francisco, and and you got it exactly right. You know, there's there's at least five or six or seven promising compounds that are out there, things that the doctors and scientists have known about for years that we see seems to extend life in mice and, and to get rid of inflammation and things like that. But nobody's been willing to fund a human trial because you've basically got to do it for 40 or 50 years. And so this company loyal is now going to test these compounds on dogs. And, you know, they think they can run these studies in two, three, four years and see if it works. And, and then, you know, the goal is, is if this seems like it's working on dogs, maybe people will be more willing to do some of these tests on humans or just to go ahead and, and greenlight the drugs. So how likely is this? Because as I kidded in the top, you know, we've been on this pursuit of the fountain of youth forever. So how likely is there something out there that, you know, helps out my dog Scout? I'd love to have her forever. Uh, but also I'd like to live a little bit longer. Well, it's funny because when I went into this, I was skeptical, <laughs> as you would imagine. Yeah. But um, you know, I interviewed a number of scientists, and and uh, there are these these drugs like metformin and rapamycin, um, which are used in humans for different things, like um, helping with organ transplants and other conditions. That people are are reasonably certain will have positive effects on dogs and humans. It's just people have been reluctant to. To try this stuff. And so, um, you know, in my interviews, they're talking about for large breed dogs who live on average about seven years, they think they could live not only kind of two years longer, but have, you know, much um, better lifestyle mm -hmm. in, in their latter years. And so, you know, it's not uh, living forever or anything like that. It's kind of like a, a quality of life improvement that people are pretty sure we will see. So if that ends up, up happening and if it works for dogs, help us connect it to, to humans and to what extent perhaps humans could live just a few years longer and, and what those years would be like. Yeah, I mean, so the thesis of this company is, is that um, the FDA has been reluctant to, to even think about drugs that are as general for something as general as aging. You know, you have to have a medicine that's targeting a specific illness. But if this worked... In the dogs, then this this could pave um, this could pave the way for for maybe easing some of these restrictions. And the scientists I talk to, they don't recommend it for everyone, but they're already taking these compounds. Wow, a lot that's of the part I and, love. <laughs> and, and they're curing their their sore shoulder. That you know, you're in your fifties and you got this sore shoulder for months. And this one guy I talked to went away in about a week after, after taking one of these drugs. So, um, so you know, I mean, I you know, I think if you if you make this more mainstream and acceptable by through dogs, it really could change our perspective on this field. It's also a little bit of the kind of a, a perfect sell, you know, like six months extra on something's life or, I mean, even two years, two years is more meaningful with, with maybe a dog, but six months, it's like, who knew, who knew if it worked or not. Uh, but actually speaking of um, the doctors and stuff we were doing it on themselves, um, Ash, is it, you know, one of my favorite little nuggets in here is that you administer it to dogs with peanut butter. So are these guys feeding themselves peanut butter? What's the vehicle that's delivered by? <laughs> I mean, because I, I was asking, I'm like, I kept picturing, you know, is the shots, is it pills? But but for the most part, it is it's pills. And and basically, I mean, what these doctors are doing, they're just they're, they're sort of taking 
prescription drugs and just using them as, as they want for, for these things. So yeah, it's just, it's just pills. You can eat it with whatever you want. Yeah. <laughs> so legit question though. Um, there's a lot of money sloshing around in, in this space. And so talk to us about what the funding is like, not only for, for this company, this startup, but in the rest of the space. Yeah, I mean, you know, a lot of this stuff has seemed kind of fringe in the past, and so you never know um, what to take seriously and what not. I mean, I think in this case, the company is backed by the Longevity Fund is one of its investors, and, and they're kind of the, the the top investor in this whole field. They've, they've done a bunch of comp- uh, different startups in this area. But, you know, I think the you can imagine that people would pay almost anything to, to have their dogs live a bit longer. And, and so the, the business case on this one seems, seems clear to me that if, if you really could get this to work, um, you know, the founders of Loyal said they want to try to keep the price low, um, low enough that everyone can use this, but I imagine it will start out quite high. Mm. How low is that, though? <laughs> start start high like right. Tesla, they, right? Start with the, with the, with the high expensive I, automobile and get it, get it, uh, get it less expensive. I couldn't get an exact number, but you know the one thing here to note is they're they're not trying to develop novel drugs. You don't have to go through the usual biotech, you know, multi-billion dollars of research, and um, this is stuff that that the patents are largely expired on these compounds. It's just a matter of running the trial and proving that this works and getting people to accept the idea. So I, I don't actually think it would come in, you know, that horribly expensive. Well, I'll be looking forward to that next Bark Box that has a little, like, uh, maybe peanut butter pill that keeps Scott going longer. Because you could see it. I mean, people are spending so much on their dogs. It's, who knows? And then and people then, start slipping them to themselves, and too. And then we start slipping them to ourselves. <laughs> Roll up. One for you, one for me. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Ashley, thanks so much. Uh, Ashley Vance, features writer at Bloomberg Business Week, author of Elon Musk, Tesla, SpaceX, and the quest for a fantastic future. Joining us on the phone from Palo Alto, our thanks to Joel Weber, too, editor at Bloomberg Business Week magazine in our interactive brokers studio. It just, it had me thinking of the show Silicon Valley. Remember those scenes? It's very possible. Yeah. The blood transfusions from the young young guy to the older guy. It can happen. It can happen. It will happen. This is The Big Take, the best of Bloomberg's in-depth original reporting from around the globe. What we have to make sure we do as the economy recovers is look at the data kind of broken down a bit. These plants are becoming more and more expensive. You're looking at $15 billion for their entry level. There have been waves of immigration that have faced a lot of resistance. There's a lot of color behind the scenes and a great untold story. How did Bezos really come out on top? As the cover says, Jeff wins. He always seems to win. <laughs> The Big Take on Bloomberg Radio. All right, it is time for the Bloomberg Big Take. It's one of those stories, it's a Bloomberg exclusive that needs to be on your radar. And today it takes us inside China's vast debt-ridden financial system. Let's get to the story with Bloomberg News Executive Editor David Gillen. He is on the phone in our New York City Bureau. David, nice to have you here with us. You know, let's talk about the Chinese financial system and tell us about the bad bank that is one that everyone seems to be focusing on and with good reason. Sure. This is a company that's actually not very widely known outside of you know, really tight financial circles in China, but it's at the very center of the power structure there. It was set up in the late 1990s after the Asian financial crisis, uh, basically to mop up a lot of bad loans that the state-run banks uh, were amassing. And it turns out, all these years later, that the, that the bad bank that was supposed to save uh, the uh, clean, up, clean up the mess has in fact become this giant mess itself. And so it's got a lot of people at the very highest levels 
of, uh, of, of the Chinese um, Again, sort of the, the, the financial power structure, but it's also the political power structure because it's kind of hard to separate the two <laughs> uh, at times. Right. Uh, and it's really occupying a lot of times. It's also got um, it's got international investors nervous uh, for a reason that's um, kind of on the meta. The meta reason behind this is whether it's a too big to fail question, which is kind of you know it's funny. It goes back to you know our own financial crisis back in two thousand and eight uh, about like what is an institution? Is it is it so important that it can't be allowed to fail? Or maybe it can. So that's kind of one of the questions they're grappling with. So how is the state going to try to prevent it from failing? Well, I mean, this is this is this is the uh, for for international bondholders. That's a forty billion dollar question. <laughs> uh, you know, right now they've. Um, they, they've, they, they appear, our reporting is that they have arranged a sort of a financial backstopping from uh, various state-run banks, uh, which are really at the center of the, um, of, you know, obviously the old school, more old line uh, financial structure, power structure in, in China. The new ones being the sort of, you know, Jack Ma fintech, which also at the same time, you know, China is trying to sort of rein that in. So you're, you know, all of this is connected. I think people have to look at this as sort of all of a piece uh, and all of a part of, you know, our reporting is also that nothing, the state will stand behind uh, China Huarong uh, at, at minimum through July, which is the 100th anniversary of the Chinese Communist Party. Uh, Xi Jinping, who is uh, China's leader, is trying to, you know, create a, uh, an image of himself. He's sort of, you know, hanging on to power pretty much indefinitely uh, and, and putting himself forward as a figure sort of akin to Mao. So, you know, they don't want anything to happen that's going to sort of upset, uh, upset the apple cart between here and there. Right. And this is all part of China really trying to cement, establish, you know, them being a real player in the developed world rather than the developing world. And having a, uh, a stable financial system is a big part of it. Speaking of stability, though, it's not easy to be a senior executive of this company. Uh, no, it is not. <laughs> it's the yeah, understatement it, of the world. It, 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 it is indeed not. No, we, we, one of the great things about this big take is that we really, for the first time, took people sort of inside the, uh, this, uh, this, this, uh, this company, uh, China Huarong, uh, and it's, it's on uh, Financial Street in, uh, in Beijing. The former chairman who ran the ran uh, uh, China Huarong for, I guess, a decade, um, was known for a time as the god of wealth uh, because he was showering uh, lots of money to pet projects and sort of running it a little bit like a, you know, like a piggy bank, uh, his personal piggy bank, uh, and was eventually uh, caught up in a, in a massive sweep uh, by Xi Jinping for corruption, and he was executed. Uh, it's been about three months or so. Uh, he was executed in the Chinese city of, of, of Tianjin, um, and uh, so the guy who, who came in uh, to take his place. I mean, that's, a, that's an awkward situation to be in, to be the guy who comes in, yeah. uh, you know, for, for the, your predecessor was executed. So, um, you know, it, they're, they're dealing with a lot of, uh, of alphabet soup of, of, of different Chinese agencies, uh, the central bank, the uh, uh, banking regulator, uh, and so on. But it goes up really to the very, very highest levels. So is it is it a situation where policymakers or the state could allow it to fail and ultimately $41 billion goes up in smoke? I don't think that that's likely. And this is, I mean, I'm, this is, I, 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 can, I will speculate, frankly, like a lot of international and, and domestic Chinese investors are speculating. The, the, the best that we can ascertain is that no, nobody thinks it's going to go down. Nobody thinks it's going to f outright fail. Will bondholders be forced to accept 
you know, to, to eat some losses. Mm, yeah, I mean, it, that, that's a possibility, you know. Um, but, but again, I think one of the bigger questions here is not, and I know these numbers, these are big numbers, you know, $40 billion, and if you have to take a haircut of, you know, whatever percent, you know, that's still a lot of real money, right? But the bigger question is what that then telegraphs about mm. this, th- about this mm-hmm. longstanding, longstanding idea that, that state uh, state-owned enterprises are that are really considered important cannot be allowed to 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 fail in any way. That the state always stands behind them, and that I think ultimately is what got people is what has people so nervous. Yeah, it's it is interesting, and it's 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 different from our financial crisis. Although we did have the U.S. government ultimately right and Treasury and the Fed like propping up the financial system, but China's in a similar yet different predicament. Yeah, I mean, it is and it isn't. I mean, yeah. the, in, in both cases, you know, what's the problem? Fundamentally, three words, too much debt. Mm, yeah. <laughs> you know, right. ultimately too much debt. And, you know, you look back, China Huarang is a, you know, they call it a bad bank or whatever. I mean, you can go back to the SNL crisis here in the U.S. You know, you look at the, the, the RTC, the Resolu- Resolution mm-hmm. Trust Corporation, you know, and you're trying, you know, this is an institution that's created to sort of, you know, to backstop the, to the troubled institutions and then somehow, oh, Lord, it becomes a, it becomes a mess itself. And so there's a little bit of irony in all that because this is, this is an institution that was, China Huarang, that was created to, to, to fix a problem and is in the end become a problem. Yeah, it's, it's, it's <laughs> the way it plays out will ultimately say a lot, um, certainly about China's financial system going forward. Hey, listen, a great story. And David, really appreciate you stopping by to explain it to us. Bloomberg News Executive Editor David Gillen on the phone in our New York City Bureau. It is our Bloomberg Big Take story on uh, this Monday, and it's exclusive. And it's really just something, you know, another firm that you need to be aware of globally. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic on Bloomberg Radio. Tim, remember how Tesla and Elon Musk had said that uh, he's pretty sure he can develop a fully self-driving car without using laser sensor technology? Hey, I just need cameras. <laughs> I just need cameras. Well, it turns out uh, that may not be the case that he doesn't need that laser sensing technology. Maybe, maybe. maybe. We don't quite know. Right? Time will tell, right. right? All right, so let's get into it because this is a Bloomberg exclusive, a Bloomberg scoop. It's among our most read stories on the Bloomberg. Bloomberg News auto reporter Gabby Coppola on the phone from our Detroit bureau. So Gabby, Tell us about what's going on, because Tesla's actually testing a luminar sensor that Elon Musk initially was like, yeah, we don't need this. Yeah. Um, hey, guys. Um, so this all started, uh, I think, for me, at least uh, late last week when somebody on Twitter posted a picture of a Tesla Model Y SUV in Palm Beach, Florida, with a roof rack with LIDARs on it. And there was a lot of speculation about well, what's going on here, LIDAR. And to be clear, that wasn't the first time there's been, you know, photos popping up of, of Teslas with LIDAR on them. And there was a lot of speculation that the stock of the LIDAR company, which is called Luminar, uh, actually went up like 10% on Thursday just because of speculation on Twitter. So my colleagues and I said, okay, let's try to figure out what's really going on because this is really you know, causing a lot. There's movement in the stock. You know, Elon has famously uh, dissed laser sensors, which pretty much everybody else in the industry believes is, is kind of a critical uh, piece of the three, you know, three-legged stool of what you need to kind of enable these features. So what we did was we were able to confirm, one, that um, that car that was spotted did in fact belong to Tesla. We, we tracked the uh, manufacturer's place. We checked with the California DMV. That car does belong to Tesla. And through some other sourcing and reporting we did, 
we confirmed that, yes, um, Tesla has a contract with Luminar. They are buying LiDAR sensors uh, from Luminar. So, yes, that is a fact. That is true. That is what we do know. Well, however, um, it's not a guarantee yes. that they will be using this technology on future versions of a vehicle, right? Correct. So, and that's where I think a lot of the polemic is and the debate is. Um, if you're uh, if you're a Tesla bear, you're, and, and you expect everything, you think Elon Musk has gone astray and this whole system is not going to work, then you looked at this and you said, "Aha! He's capitulated. He's using lidar." We have no proof of that. Okay, just to be clear, we just know that he's testing lidar. And so, some of the experts we spoke to, and you know, people in the AV industry say it's not weird. It wouldn't be unusual. Um, if you have a camera-centric system you're using to kind of teach the car, you know, how to sense the world and drive itself, you might kind of validate that. It's almost like you're checking the work of the camera by saying, okay, is the LiDAR seeing the same thing? You know, it's basically like a testing tool, okay? So that's, that's one possibility, and there are experts that say that's a likely possibility. This is all just in support of his research for his camera-centric system. Um, it's also possible that you know, you're, you're part of the R&D skunk works at Tesla. You're trying, it's part of your job to go out there and try out all the newest cutting-edge technology and see how good it is, you know? Right. So it, it could also just be doing that. Right. So, right. Or, so, or he, could yeah. have, he mm -hmm. could have decided, hey, maybe we need to have this on my car. Like, right, there's, I mean, this is, right. I think I feel like you could check the boxes of all this, right, for him potentially? Yeah. I mean, I, I, I mean, I, I mean, in terms of um, one of the people we spoke to for the story made a great point that um, if, if Tesla were to start putting LiDAR on its cars in future models, what would that say? It would almost be like saying that every car they made up until then isn't good enough. Hmm. You know, Ooh, that would be pretty so, rough. Right. So ego is one thing and pride. There's plenty of that in the auto industry. Right. And I'm sure Elon Musk also has big ego. <laughs> like there's, there's it's one thing to kind of be. Yeah. Um, kind of, you know, stuck in the mud because you don't want to change course. It's another thing to just, you know, it might actually affect your other product on the market. So um, th those are all the cases against, but hey, you know, we don't, you never know. Things could change. We will see. There, yeah. are, there are also some other clues, Gabby, right, that you and, and, and Dana and, and Ed write about in this piece. The idea that Musk has softened some of his public comments on LiDAR, talking about uh, that, that he was talk, uh, he was talking smack. He admitted this in the, in the clubhouse earlier this year. And then also that, that LiDAR is used on SpaceX, which is, of course, Elon Musk's other company. Right, right. And I think that just points to that, you know, there's always, as usual, there's more nuance in context than what might first be observed, right? So, right, he talked about how he said, ah, I, you know, I like to talk smack about LiDAR, but in fact, we built <laughs> our we own in-house LiDAR. <laughs> yes, you know, yeah, um, favorite topic of mine. So, um, but, you know, he was saying we, in fact, built our own in-house LiDAR, LiDAR for the space station that was ex uh, accepting the Dragon capsule, the, you know, SpaceX satellite, so, um, or rocket, so, um, it's not, you know, one thing, I, Musk is a renaissance man. He really does understand all of these technologies. Um, so he appreciates LiDAR is a useful tool. His point, I, as far as I understand it, is that when he had to make that decision, 
he said, LIDAR is too expensive to put it on a car, on a consumer vehicle. It'll just make it too expensive. And to be fair, a lot of other mm. um, car companies agreed with him. That, you know, that's why you see a lot of auto suppliers saying, let's use radar, let's use this other thing, let's, you know, let's use cheaper things. But when right. you get to a certain level of capability, right. the consensus is that you need the LIDAR. All right, got to run. Hey, Gabby, thanks so much. Gabby Coppola, she's auto reporter at Bloomberg News, joining us on the phone from Detroit. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week, and this is Bloomberg Radio. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. Yeah, how about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I wanna drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. All right, just about 10 and a half minutes left in today's trading session. We are topping out near our highs of the trading session. Let's get to it. The drive to the close with Brendan Ahern, Chief Investment Officer at Crane Shares. They offer up a group of China-focused ETFs, approximately $10 billion in assets under management. Brendan joining us on the phone in New York City. Brendan, how are you? I'm doing very well, Carol, yourself. Doing okay, hanging in there, getting ready to wrap up uh, the month of May, which is pretty remarkable. We're almost kind of halfway through this year. How do you see the trading environment right now, especially when it relates to China specifically, which is where you guys focus? So China, just like here in the United States, is going uh, through a rotation from a growth tech-orientated securities to more of a value cyclical uh, we think elements of that rebalancing are probably in the later stages that investors have kind of balanced out between value and growth, having been heavily skewed uh, toward growth over the last several years. So we're, we're hoping the second half of the year we see a little bit of a rebound on, on the growth side. Is there regulatory risk, though, specifically with China and the crackdown that the company or that the country is having, especially on tech companies? Oh, Tim, it's, uh, we've had everything but the kitchen sink thrown at our space. Yeah. Um, you know, you've got U.S. regulatory, China regulatory. Uh, we've added a, a new adjective uh, to the vocabulary, Archerghost. You know, five of the ten names uh, involved were U.S.-listed Chinese companies. Uh, but that's, that's part of the reason we're a little bit more optimistic that – uh, you know, the actual regulatory, it's been more bark than bite. The fines have been pretty manageable, pretty de minimis. Hmm. Um, and yet the securities are, are really baking in a very, very worst case scenario. And we just think sediment being as bad as it is. So, so you're an entry point. I want to make sure I understand. So you're saying that the investors are essentially overreacting to the regulatory crackdown. And that's been an opportunity for you? Well, we definitely do. Uh, I mean, we, a lot of our names are down 30, 40, 50 right. percent from, from the highs. And, you know, we're going through earnings season for the Chinese Internet space. I, I just use our ticker, KWeb is our uh, China Internet ETF. But, you know, you look at the earnings of the companies, they're, they're handling this regulation. Uh, very, very strong earnings. Uh, there is a little bit of a differentiated, uh, differentiated between quality growth and profitless growth. So we're seeing a preference on the quality, uh, on the quality side. Um, you know, names like Alibaba, Tencent, uh, JD.com, a lot of these bigger players, positive free, free cash flow, strong net income preference there. You mentioned KWeb, your internet fund, that's down about 
31%, um, just looking at Bloomberg data, over the past three months. I looked at your crane shares, CSI uh, China Internet Fund, that's down, uh, or maybe that's the one I'm talking about, uh, down about 31% over the past three months. Investment flows, what are you seeing? Are investors getting a little bit nervous, though, when it comes to that that area? I understand what you say about the government and that maybe investors are overreacting, but I guess time will tell, ultimately, what will be China's role in some of these internet behemoths that are Chinese-based, and yet all of a sudden uh, the government seems to be, you know, reining them in. So uh, from a flow perspective, it's, it's been a very strong year. That uh, year-to-date, we've had uh, a, a $1.1 billion of net inflow. So I think, I think investors are using uh, this, this pretty healthy correction uh, as, as an entry point. That I think during the trade war, people were really underweight, a lot of the, the China plays. So they're looking to re, re, you know, re-rate the space, uh, having kind of maybe sat on the sidelines the last two years. Hmm. So if so, where is the where are you seeing the, the opportunity right now? If somebody comes to you and says they want to, you know, they want to invest, um, where's the opportunity in China? And I and we asked too because you've got semiconductor and five yeah. G funds, you've got healthcare, you've got consumer, you've got EVs, you've got the One Belt Road, you've got global carbon. Where is it that they should be putting their money because it makes sense? Well, this is like choosing amongst your children, which one's your favorite. Um, but, you know, I, I would say K-Web here, it, it just looks very, very inexpensive from a, from a relative valuation, from a historical valuation. We've seen these drawdowns in the past. They don't, they've, they've not lasted. And, you know, just using history as a precedent would say that this is, makes for a fantastic entry point. And uh, just for whatever it's worth, I've, I've added, added to my K-Web position recently and uh, we'll look to do so again. So what's your best argument for somebody who says, wait a second, I'm a little too concerned with how close the companies are to the state. I'm, too con- I'm a little too concerned with regulatory action uh, that the country seems to be taking. And um, I'm a little concerned with about a, a lack of transparency about the relationships there. Well, I, I think ultimately, you know, U.S. companies are doing very, very well in China. But, you know, you look at multinationals geared to the consumer, the Starbucks and Nikes and Apples. Um, it's almost $500 billion of revenue are generated in China annually uh, from U.S. publicly traded companies. Purchasing power of their urban middle class is seven trillion, according to the Brookings Institute. So, so ultimately, you know, a lot of times, Tim, we recommend to people, let's just, you know, everything we do in finance is data driven. So mm-hmm. let's just look at the data. Let's let's try to forget about some of the hyperbole or perceptions. Let's just focus on the data because I, th- I think that sets some of those concerns at ease. Do you think that, especially, it seems increasingly like Republicans in Congress are, are, are talking about American companies doing business in China, and that's not necessarily a good thing. And increasingly, we're seeing calls for, for companies like Disney, for example, not to participate in China in the same way that it has been. Is that concerning to you? There's 4 billion people in Asia. To say that you're not going to do business, uh, you know, obviously China at 1.4 billion, but, but the factories are in China. They're in Asia because there's 4 billion consumers there. Um, it's, it's not just about cheap labor. It's, it's, it's the springboard. And, um, you know, I just, I'm, I'm very dismissive of, hmm. you know, this idea we're going to bring it back. It's, you know, you've got less than 400 million people here in the U.S. Where would you put a factory? It's over there for a reason. And I, uh, I really don't see this idea that you're going to 
you know, cut off trade or, you know, what have you. It's just it's just it's an incredible opportunity for U.S. companies. And all of that money flows back to Cupertino. It flows back to Detroit or Seattle. Yeah. Um, You know, yeah. No, Brenda, we've only got about a minute or so left, minute 20 left here. Um, some names that you like, um, and forgive me if I mispronounce, Jinzai Solar. Uh, I'm looking at the ADRs here in the U.S. Uh, they've been beaten up, um, actually not the ADRs, but actually what trades over in Hong Kong, down about 35%. This is a name that you think investors should commit new money to? So this name, will it's actually going to be added, Carol, to the, uh, the prestigious Hang Sang Index. Uh, this Friday, so mm-hmm. we like you know that there's about 16 billion of uh, ETF assets benchmarked to the Hang Seng Index. So so Jin Yi Solar is going to be it's a big big player. If you think Biden and team are going to keep pushing uh, the uh, clean energy solution, this is a company that's a beneficiary, and you know you also benefit from it going into a very significant uh, local index. And finally, um, just just considering what we're what we're talking about a little later, inflation, and I'm wondering about what we saw with uh, commodity prices and what we saw with the Chinese government essentially saying to some some business leaders today, making sure they're not hoarding commodities. I'm wondering if you have any comment on that. And just got about 20 seconds. They're going to tighten margin requirements on commodity futures. Hmm. They're worried about commodity inflation in the PPI. Uh, I think that's going to be very hard to do. Just the market, you know, free market sets those prices. Right. Demand outstripping supply. You know, I'd see commodity prices staying high. Yeah, hard to keep it in uh, check. Hey, listen, Brendan, thank you so much. Brendan Ahern, he's Chief Investment Officer at Crane Shares, joining us on the phone from New York City, roughly $10 billion in assets under management. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. And you can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio or watch us on YouTube. Search Bloomberg Global News.